As we are now apparently entering an apocalyptic era, the Earth Wind and Fire going crazy reminds me that we are now in September. Ray Ray is fundamental, number one podcast from the get-go. And since you're listening, you got good sense, so let me break it down on this instrumental. It's basketball and all its essences. It's full of pop culture references. Okay. Point guards to stretch fours and fives. The last Buffy episode, despite survival. Uh, yeah. Never mind, let me get on track. Houston had a good run and a team was stacked. We had plans for the team, wolves, y'all remember? Yeah. Quick question in sync, who's your favorite remember? Oops, uh, I did it again. Hold up, wait. Best team on the court, probably Golden State. Yeah. Curry and them, yeah, they out this world. But that's Gray's top five. He's saying the Spice Girls. <laughs> are listening to the Ray Ray is Fundamental Podcast, episode 124, recorded September the 8th, 2020. How's it going? My name is Ray Ray. You remember me, right? It's been a while. So, uh, I meant to keep this going weekly, although I don't like saying this podcast on the schedule because I just like going my people's schedules and I'd rather not pigeonhole guests on a certain day. And I'm flexible enough to abide by their times, but... Uh, I was set to record two weeks ago, but it was during a tumultuous day where the Celtics and the Raptors focused on talking about the unjust shooting of Jacob Blake. So this was even before the walkouts happened, and uh, I decided to cancel the podcast because it felt it felt too inappropriate to talk about sports in an intense time. So, like, sports were not the focus during that point, so I canceled it. Then last week, I got sick, I had the chills... And it was scary enough for me that I got a COVID test, and thankfully I came out negative. But I felt so cold the rest of the week, and it was and it's the summer right now, right? So it was really weird. But I'm okay now, so I'm able to knock out this episode. Uh, so this week, and I apologize for making you wait for like nearly a month, but Brady Claw from SB Nation comes back. We talked about our feelings about sports during this climate. Uh, we talked NBA playoffs. Oh, by the way. So I had said in the conversation that the Milwaukee Bucks might be eliminated by that by the time this podcast is first released, and sure enough, they have been. They lost in five games to the surprising Miami Heat, and it's the Heat's first East Finals appearance since LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh took them there in 2014. Also, we talked WNBA, and we were talking about the Rookie of the Year race between Crystal Dangerfield, Tati Savali, and Kennedy Carter, who I somehow forgot. <laughs> during that conversation, but um, that talk led to us talking about the NBA Rookie of the Year, uh, and we got into this deep tangent about the the history of the winners and the absurd voting. Like seriously, it's a it's a trip down memory lane, and we probably wasted too much time talking about it. But let me tell you, it was so fun. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. I'm gonna stop babbling here. So let's go straight to my conversation with the excellent Brady Cloffer. Take me away. Hey guys, it's Pamela Horton, Miss October 2012, and you are listening to Ray Ray is Fundamental Podcast. Ray Ray is Fundamental Podcast, episode 124. Back from a few weeks of a break, my guest. He talks Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball, National Basketball Association, Women's National Basketball Association on Sports Blog Nation. That's SB Nation to you guys. But he specializes on the San Francisco Giants, Golden State Warriors, LA Sparks, but I should have said specializes because he's he's a five tool player. Well, more of a five tool human being. Brady Cloffer, what's up? That was the best introduction that I have ever received. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very much for that. That was that was wonderful. Well, I mean, I'm only speaking the truth here, right? So um, jeez, three weeks of a break. This is also happened last week, but I mean, not two weeks ago, but like, a lot of things happened. First of all, I felt it was extremely inappropriate to do a podcast about sports when there's, 
NBA and WNBA taking a break because of because of a you know social justice basically because of Jacob Blake getting shot. So I thought it was inappropriate. And then last week, I had the chills, like literally just the chills, no fever, no headache, no pain, just chills. I was cold, felt like a winter winter day, in the summer. So uh, at least the COVID test came out negative. So we're here Thank now God finally. Jeez. So how are you in this apoc- apocalyptic day? Well, I'm much better than that, <laughs> which I guess isn't saying much, um, uh, but thankfully I'm feeling well, which hopefully you're uh, feeling well now at long last. Yeah, I do feel much better, and although you look out there, in Southern California, it looks very dark, at least in my in my area. Yeah, mine too. It it does look apocalyptic. the The sky is befitting the year right now. It uh, it's it's creepy. It's creepy. It's so hot, but you look out and it's like dark, and it's not quite muggy so much as it kind of just looks like maybe the world has ceased to exist beyond <laughs> like the you know half mile radius around you. It, it's weird. It really is. And I was speaking to some friends about five months ago when the pandemic was just starting, right? And it was all it was all sunny it looked great out there and i'm like this does not fit like a pandemic a pandemic environment it should be more dark and brooding and you know the world's about to end and here it is now i got what i wished yeah brooding is is the perfect word for it the the atmosphere is brooding right now and and who can blame it yeah seriously well it's not what i wish but you know you know what i mean (laughs) but um so we talked five months ago um uh, we already asked how you felt, but, like, how do you feel now about sports going on? Because five months ago, we were saying the same thing. Like, dude, they should not start sports back. But yet, here we are. The bubble's working. The wobble's working. Soccer hockey are doing great. Baseball had a terrible start, but they seem to be doing better now. And the NFL starting this week. Yeah, I I kind of have, you know, mixed, mixed feelings about it all. Um, the, the bubble and the wobble have worked phenomenally which is great i was very skeptical very critical um a lot of people on social media were not happy with how uh skeptical and critical i was um and i still you know i I am very happy to have been wrong in my skepticism yes um i still have a little bit of criticism, I think. I, I think I stand by some of that. Like, I'm, I'm glad it has worked as well as it has, and I'm still not entirely convinced that it, it should have even happened in the first place. Um, it's been the best-case scenario, I think, but it still has been a risk, in my opinion, and it still is a situation where... Um, you know, props to the NBA and the WNBA. They've they've put resources in back into the communities and whatnot. Uh, but there's still an element of it where I feel like, well, this is kind of just class disparity in action that they're able to put, you know, tens of millions of dollars into making sure that they can be safe and have this work when uh, the rest of the country and world are struggling and and failing so much. So. Parts of it still don't sit incredibly well with me, um, but I think where I stand on it currently is that things are starting to reopen, things are starting to try to get back to normal, and while I don't necessarily think that many of them should be, um, if that's going to happen, then we need to make sure that we're putting an emphasis on things being as safe and responsible as possible. Uh, the NBA and WNBA have absolutely nailed that. Baseball has learned from some early foibles and seems to now be starting to figure it out. Uh, the NFL is just, who knows? We'll see. It's going to be a huge experiment here because, you know, I don't think anyone trusts the NFL to, to do the <laughs> responsible uh, thing. Uh, and obviously they just have a larger sum of players than most leagues do. Uh, so I'm... I'm morbidly curious to see how that goes, but hopefully as well as we've seen elsewhere. Before the people complain to me about, oh, how, how, how could you leave out soccer and hockey? Yeah, they're doing a good job too, so leave me alone. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing is, it's like what I'm afraid of is that one person can destroy everything. 
in this bubble and wobble and whatever else, right? Like, just one person. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's all it takes, and that was, you know, a huge part of my skepticism about even the bubbles is that, yeah, it only it's great if you get 100% buy-in, but how realistic is that? And um, whether the NBA players have just been responsible or whether the you know guidelines have just been so strict that they haven't had an opportunity to be irresponsible, I don't know. But um, good on them for for making that be the case. But with football, you know, and and baseball and and a lot of other sports, you don't have you don't have that bubble. And I don't know why. Uh, you've already seen. I mean, look. The, I don't know if you've been following this, but UFC has. You know, they've been. They were who we were talking about when we talked five months ago because they were the first yeah. league trying to make a return. And they've had, you know, they're putting on events almost every weekend, and they're getting, like, two to five fights per event canceled because of a positive <laughs> test. Uh, and it's just, even in any sport, even if, if there's not a lot of contact, even if there's not kind of a snowball effect, it's just, like you said, it's so easy for, for one person to mess everything up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um... This is not a sporting event, but Sturgis had their motorcycle rally. Huh. <laughs> and then I think, like, uh, how many positive tests were there? Like, 250,000 or whatever 250,000, yeah. That's insane. Like, why would you have... Im- I shouldn't even ask that, actually. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> a motorcycle rally when, like, the, there's an entire pandemic going on. Like, yeah, that's that's smart, yeah. And that motorcycle rally is responsible for more cases than, like, a lot of countries. <laughs> which is just... America! Yeah, I know. It's so insane. But, like... I don't know. But but at least, again, like, they're taking... Ca- the, the sports are taking care of um, the testings and their, their players and everything. But, yeah, it's... it's I'm still weirded out why baseball and football would, won't just have a bubble to, like, just play in one or two fields or whatever. Like, I don't get that. Yeah, it's it's especially weird with baseball because, you know, they're doing the truncated season. So, you know, their original concerns from the players were that they didn't want to be quarantined away from their families for that long. But at the same time, it's like it's a two-month season. It's, it's not any longer than, than what the NBA has been doing. I think one of the concerns with baseball that I assume is, is a concern with football, I know that the league was pessimistic that they could actually find a place that had enough fields that were not only, you know, big enough and well-maintained enough, but had the infrastructure for all of the broadcasting material, all the cameras and all the camera angles you need. Um, so I assume that would be a problem with football, too, is, you know, if you want to keep having games just on Sundays, then you need to have, you know, I don't know how many, four or five fields just to play three games in a row. That's true. Um and all of those fields need to be able to, to yeah. support all of the cameras. So it's a logistical nightmare no matter what you want to do. So um, I'm kind of surprised that the NFL didn't just, like, build an enormous infrastructure just for this that they could then use for something else. Yeah. Just because that seems like the kind of thing that the NFL would do. Probably not a good idea, but seems like something Roger Goodell would be like, you know what, let's just build a compound with ten fields and... <laughs> Could work. I'm just trying to imagine like a, an area with like ten football fields and they're just all playing at the same time. That seems terrible. In that's, yeah, that's 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 a nightmare situation, isn't it? <laughs> um. So Paul George brought up mental health in the in uh in one of his post game interviews. Um. Would you be able to last in a bubble like that for three months? That's that's all you're gonna be doing is like. Reporting about basketball, that's all you're going to be able to do. Not see your family or anything like that. I would, I think, mm-hmm. um, just personally. But I think I, you know, we talked about this last time we podcasted. I feel like I'm uh, uniquely situated to succeed in a pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm a little antisocial. I'm extremely introverted. I'm very happy. Um being in my own personal bubble and just kind of like living in a tiny space and and reading and and writing and stuff like that yeah uh so i think i would you know i think i would do very well i think it's a a pretty difficult situation for 
most people, uh, especially anyone who, who struggles with, with mental health in any way. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'd do fine, but I don't think it's a, a, a good situation that you, you would expect very many people to be able to thrive in. I think I'd just get extremely lucky, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, after my experience being quarantined like twice already in this pandemic, remember when we, we were first podcasting in April, I was exposed to the virus, so I had to quarantine for two weeks, right? And then last week I had to quarantine because I didn't know if I had the COVID, so it's like, maybe I can actually do it now. <laughs> yeah, you, you've already done like a third of it, basically. Yeah, so I don't see why not. Um, Yeah, so I guess we'll talk sports now that sports are going on, actually, but um, the NBA playoffs, like, by the time this podcast comes out, this team might be already eliminated, but man, the Milwaukee Bucks are struggling against the Miami Heat. And, um, yeah, what I, I saw, like, Matt Moore talking about, like, how that like the best teams don't win. It, it doesn't matter anymore for about the regular season because the best teams don't win. But, like, what the hell is Milwaukee doing wrong here? It's a weird situation, and I'm not really sure that it's, you know, I'm not really sure that it's that the best team isn't capable of winning. I just think that... Uh, the Bucks kind of have some flaws in both their roster construction and their coaching that are just getting exposed yeah. a little bit now in the postseason. Like, I don't think there's necessarily like a, a fundamental issue with them being so good in the in the regular season and it just being a different team in the postseason. But um, you know, especially against Miami, you just see a very stark contrast where. Eric Spolstra is, you know, I think most people would agree, a a very elite coach, especially in the postseason. Yeah. Uh, and Mike Budenholzer has proven to be a, a pretty elite regular season coach, but he's also proven to have a lot of issues mm-hmm. in the postseason. And uh, it's it's just kind of a different game when you when you play a team four to seven times in a row, and you have off days, and you have the ability to actually game plan specifically for an opponent. Um, I think a lot of fans don't realize how little game planning teams do during the regular season. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so little time. You're moving on from one team to the next. You rarely practice between games. And really, you're so focused on putting together your own strategies and schemes and fine-tuning what you're doing that you don't have as much time to focus on what your opponent is doing. And when you get to the regular or the postseason and you're playing the same team, you know who you're going to be playing. You have the more off days, and you really get to just hone in on that team. Mm-hmm. You get to start to try to pick them apart a little bit, and I, I think uh, Eric Spolster is a master at that, and I think Mike Budenholzer just really struggles to kind of get to his second and third options when he's being attacked like that. Uh, and it's weird to see. It's, it's very weird to see a team kind of dominate that much during the regular season and struggle so much in the postseason. But at the same time, I think um, I think a lot of people had questions about Milwaukee going into the postseason, and here they are. Coach Bud is a pop disciple, so I see very similar things between them. Um, like for example, uh, Pop in in 2012, uh, they were against the Thunder, right? And they were up o they were up two o, and then Scott Brooks made an adjustment. I forget what it was, but I think it was like putting um, Thomas Falosh on Tony Parker, I believe. And then Pop never fixed anything, and they lost a series. And now it's like we're seeing the same thing here, although I know they changed a little bit in Game 4 because Giannis got hurt, and Chris Middleton had to play like 45 minutes at that point. But, like, they just kept with the same their, their same strategy, their same, um, you know, style the entire time until they won Game 4. Yeah, I mean, I'm as big a Greg Popovich fan as anyone, but um, I think if there's ever, if there's been a knock on on him it's been that he's very stubborn yeah um and he he finds what he thinks is going to work and he trusts that if you just keep doing it even through the bad times that it'll eventually work out and and i understand the logic and you know i do think that some teams and certainly a lot of fans and media members are a little bit too reactionary too quick to look at you know the one game and be like oh god something went horribly wrong you have to change everything and sometimes it's sometimes it just doesn't work and you and you have to go you know what the process was right the results were wrong we got to stick with it uh but at some point you have to be able to realize when maybe the process isn't right too and i think um that's kind of been the one big knock that you can have on popovich is that he 
he sticks to his guns a little bit longer than he should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's a very fair criticism of of Budenholzer, and I think it's kind of doubly fair for him because he's, for as good of a regular season coach as he is, he's he's never been a very complex regular season coach. His, you know, his schemes aren't incredibly complex on offense or on defense, uh, and so kind of sticking by that becomes a double whammy in the postseason because, I mean, you can see in this series how often it just looks like Milwaukee doesn't have a second option to do anything. They just kind of do one thing and it doesn't work, and then they're like, well, now what do we do? And, of course, people are bringing up the fact that um, they chose Eric Bledsoe over uh, Malcolm Brogdon, who signed with the Pacers in the offseason. Um, I mean, I don't think he shifts. I don't think he changed the series necessarily, but, like, like he would have been a good uh, uh, second second ISO player for them that could make plays for them, right? Yeah, I, th- I think he would have helped. You know, Bledsoe has not played well. Um, Brogdon had a great year so I think you know if you swap them out that would help Milwaukee a little bit I think they'd still have a lot of the same issues uh, I think you know almost even a, a bigger criticism is that you know they got rid of Brogdon or they let Brogdon go in that sign and trade because they didn't want to pay so much money um, but they could have they could have re-signed him and kept Eric Bledsoe and had one of them play off guard it would have just cost more money um, but they ended up spending that money on like you know, Robin Lopez and Ursan Ilyasova and, and a bunch of guys at the back of the bench. Um, you know, they might have had, I don't know what their cap situation is, they might have had to pay a little bit of tax money, but you're looking at, you know, having a championship contender and an all-time great talent in Giannis who you know is going to be a free agent and you know isn't going to stick around if he doesn't think that he can win a championship. I, I don't really see an excuse to not just go in and all in and spend a little extra money and try to try to win, so... You know, in my opinion, they should be rolling out a lineup that doesn't have Brogdon in place of Bledsoe, but just has Brogdon next to Bledsoe. Mm-hmm. So, so many people have picked the Bucks to win the championship, but now, now that you're looking at this, and again, by the time the podcast comes out, the Bucks could be gone by this point. So, who would you pick to win the championship right now? Oh gosh. Um, so I, have, I'm of two kind of conflicting minds here. Ah. Uh-huh. If I had to pick a team, I would pick the Clippers. Mm-hmm. Uh. I think that I think they have the best player in basketball in Kawhi. Uh, they have a lot of championship experience in Kawhi. They have a championship level coach. Uh, they have good depth. They have kind of to me they 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 check all the boxes of what you need to win a championship. Mm-hmm. With that said, I think that the Heat and the Celtics and maybe even the Raptors have all looked better than any of the teams that are left in the West. Hmm. I just I think I think Miami and Boston have just looked like much better basketball teams than the Clippers or the Lakers, um, but I just can't I can't pick them. I I don't feel like they have enough star talent. I don't feel like they have enough for when things get harder. I I have to stick with one of the LA teams just at some point figuring it out. But right now it feels to me like the Clippers have a lot to figure out, and I'm picking them, but. It feels like a leap of faith that they're going to figure it out at some point. I mean, I picked the Clippers to win a championship too, but like I, I saw so many comments on on my timeline that's that's all they're all correct to me too. It's like uh, they don't seem to care as much. Um, they're just a weird team, and the chemistry, as much as the Clipper fans want to defend that, the chemistry isn't all there. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's because they probably haven't played. They haven't played together much over the season because there's just so many injuries going on so they don't they mm-hmm. don't seem to be as fluid as they should be right yeah absolutely and you know I, the chemistry is a kind of funny issues i've had a few arguments on twitter about this because you know some people seem to think that there's like an inherent chemistry issue like they don't get along uh and i don't think there is any reason to to suggest that i think you know that all stems from uh, a really great article that that yovan wrote earlier in the year that um, initially came out with a slightly misleading headline that kind of suggested that there were like hurdles that they needed to overcome. Gotta love headlines. Wasn't yeah, you gotta love headlines. But the actual article wasn't saying that. And the, and the article, you know, we both know Yovan. He's he's tremendous at what he does. It was a it was a great article. Um, and so, you know, people have kind of run with the all oh, the Clippers have chemistry issues. 
in a way that suggests that like players are bickering and fighting and you're ending up with a little bit of you know the Draymond Green Kevin Durant situation or something like that and I just haven't seen anything that suggests any of that is true but these are just inherent problems that you have when you take a team like they were last year which was a scrappy underdog team that overperformed and then you just bring in two new players who are better than anyone you had who haven't played with your guys who haven't even played with each other mm-hmm. you're just going to have those growing pains as you get used to playing with one another you can't just put in a player like Kawhi Leonard and a player like Paul George and press the go button and expect everything to like fit you know you you got to work through things and you got to figure out how to play with one another and like you said, they've had injuries. There's been the load management on Kawhi's end. And then, of course, there was the huge break from play and, and a minimal amount of time to get ready once they got in the bubble. So, yeah, I, I agree that they have some, some chemistry issues just in terms of they have a limited amount of time. They've all been on the court together, and, and that matters. And you see that with you know Boston and Toronto, those players who have been spending years playing with each other. Yeah, and they just look like a more well-oiled machine to me. Yeah, I know because when we when we talk about chemistry issues, they automatically think that they're having UFC fights in their off days against each other, <laughs> and it's like no, it's all, it's about like fit on the basketball court. And again, you mentioned it that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard just came in there. It doesn't it doesn't flow right away like some teams do, like like the OA Celtics did when they won a the championship. They flowed immediately, right? Mm-hmm. That just happens sometimes, but there are times where the basketball, the, their play just doesn't fit with each other, and it takes time for it to become fluid, and people need to understand that. <laughs> yeah, and especially with a team like the Clippers, like, you know, you know, you brought up the Celtics, which is a great point, but, like, because with the Celtics, you know, Paul Pierce was used to being kind of the go-to guy who had the ball in his hands. Right. Kevin Garnett was used to being a star, but a guy who, you know, would get position inside and run some pick and rolls and get some post entries. And Ray Allen, as much as he was a star, was used to working off ball. So all those pieces really, you know, there was a natural fit that suggests that they should be able to to work a little bit more easily because the puzzle pieces just fit a little bit more. Yeah. But Kawhi and Paul George, you know, they're ball-dominant players who like, who like to have the ball in their hands, like to run the offense, and you got two of them, and then you're adding that to Lou Williams, whose entire role <laughs> the past few years has basically been come off the bench and be the guy with the ball in your hands who scores all the points. And because we don't have anyone who can do that, and now you have two guys who can do that who have getting a lot more money than you are. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad fit. I'm not saying that you know it was poor roster construction or anything, but like... It, it was. It should have been kind of obvious from the outside that when you when you take players of that caliber and with those skill sets, that it's just going to take a while. It's hard to get used to people who play the same way as you do in terms of needing the ball in your hands. Yeah, and and it's not just the play on the play on the court, but also the egos too, right? Like that that those have to be managed as well. And people forget that it's like suddenly they have to play a new role on the team. It's like, oh, I have to be the number two guy. I guess, and then they struggle with it, right? So, people just yeah. have to learn. When we say chemistry, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're you know throwing hands or whatever. <laughs> hey guys, this is Delmi Rios from LA Sports Access, and you are listening to the Ray Ray is Fundamental podcast. I was picking Milwaukee and Toronto to go to the East Finals, and now it's looking like Miami and Boston are in the driver's seats at the moment. So, yeah, you're yeah, I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you underestimate Toronto throughout the thing? Because, like, I know a lot of people did. I, I said, like, they'll win 50. I think they're going to be strong in this season. But I didn't expect them to be, like, you know, the way they were uh, when they won 15 straight. They came out from 30 down against Dallas, stuff like that. Like, they were amazing this season. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone underestimated them just a tiny bit, at least. Um, I don't think I underestimated them very much. And I've been a little pretentious and a little bit you know, peacocky on social media about this because preseason there were just so many people who were lumping the Raptors in as a, like, fringe playoff team. Right. Like a team that would be fighting with Orlando and um, Detroit for, you know, the seventh or eighth playoff spot. And to me that was just 
insane. Yeah. Um, you know, unless they had decided to reset and, and traded some, some pieces, that to me just felt insane. The sheer amount of talent they have and how well they played last year in the games where Kawhi Leonard sat with load management. Yeah. Um, and even if you go back further, if you go back the year before or the year before that, how well they played in the games when DeMar DeRozan wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've always done really well when Kyle Lowry is the focal point of that team. Right. And Nick Nurse is a tremendous coach. Pascal Siakam has just been growing and, and doing tremendous things. Maybe not in this series, but um, <laughs> no, prior to this series at least. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, getting the second seed and um, and having, you know, that huge winning streak they had and and genuinely looking like title contenders, I think that should surprise anyone who isn't related to a member of the Raptors. But um, I definitely felt going into the season like they should be in that mix with Boston and Philadelphia for the best non-Milwaukee team in the East um, and that they should be a team that was considered to be fighting for home court advantage, not fighting to just make the playoffs. Right. And I guess I'd be remiss if I don't mention Houston and Denver. Uh, Houston, with their with their lineup of like five foot two players on the court <laughs> against the Lakers, uh, who are somehow you know keeping up with them and rebounding, right? Um, how do you like their chances against the Lakers? I like them all right. Um, you know, I, I definitely think the Lakers will win the series, um, but the Lakers don't look very good right now. They don't. Um, they've got they've got issues, um, and they're trying to figure that out on the fly. Um, the Rockets don't look particularly good either, despite having you know won that one game. Um, but you know, I think the thing about Houston, you know, kind of the the good and bad is they're so reliant on the three pointer that they can ride variance to a surprising series win or a surprising series loss um, because they can just get unsustainably hot for two, three, four games, mm-hmm. or unsustainably cold for two, three, four games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, to me, they're, they don't really feel like a championship contender, to me, uh, because I don't trust that they can just get hot for that long. But they feel, to me, like a team that can win any particular series, if for no other reason than you catch fire and, and you shoot 50% on, like, 63s. And... Um, <laughs> And somehow, somehow win. So uh, I think they'll give the Lakers a good fight. And while I don't think they'll win, I think the Lakers will be better for having had to deal with the punches that Houston's going to throw. So basically, Houston will ride or die in two things. One, the three-pointer. Two, Russell Westbrook. <laughs> yeah, there's, and that's where the problem is. <laughs> If, if I were a Houston fan, I'd be comfortable with riding the three-pointer. Uh-huh. I would not be comfortable with uh, riding or dying with Russell Westbrook. Because who has that been ugly? But he's going to play a lot. So that's the thing. He's going to play a lot. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly not going to take the ball out of his hands, and they're certainly not going to bench him. Yeah. And defenses aren't going to respect him. They're going to keep overcommitting on James Harden and forcing... Westbrook to try and and beat them, so th- that kind of is where Houston's uh, chances lie, and that's shouldn't be sitting particularly well with anyone other than you know the Lakers and Chris Paul. I mean, it's it's not totally hopeless because Westbrook did play well in the stretch of the season where he didn't shoot three pointers, where all he did was attack the rim and shoot mid range shots, which is not allowed in the toy offense, but. That's where his limit range should be, basically. So. Yeah, yeah, he's gotta he's gotta get his decision making back in order because it's been it's been atrocious. Um, he he kind of seems to be taking the way defenses are playing him as a uh, personal insult and trying to prove them wrong, which is by playing directly into what they're daring him to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um and. Uh, if he could just kind of keep playing his game rather than trying to prove to teams that they should guard him at the three-point line, he'd be doing a lot better, I think. Egos. Um, Egos. <laughs> yeah, and, and Denver, like, 
they played really well for stretches in game three, and then they just died in the fourth. So, uh, Jamal Murray, obviously a huge difference right now, because he was like a world beater in the first series against Utah, and now he, he struggled last night, got blocked by Kawhi Leonard's middle finger, um, <laughs> 14 points last night, while Nikola Jokic is doing what he can, like, I think he had like 30, 32 points and 32, 12, and 8, I believe. So, huh, what do we got here with Denver? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is just kind of another year in in their building process. Um, they're they're good. They're playing well. They're not as good as the Clippers. They're not as talented. Uh, they're not playing as well as the Clippers. Uh, and and to me, they're just kind of right now. They're they're a typical second round team that is on the upswing, admittedly, because obviously you know Jokic is kind of entering his prime. Murray at stretches this year has looked like an all-star caliber player. Uh, Michael Porter obviously has has had some really good moments. Uh, so they're a team that, you know, I think should be optimistic that they can find a next level sometime in, in the next few years. Uh, but to me, that I just don't really see anything from them that suggests that they should be able to beat the Clippers unless the Clippers just kind of shoot themselves in the foot, which... <laughs> You know, they've tried to do a few times, in fairness. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a different playoff year. We're all, we're all stuck in our homes, and they're playing in a bubble. So it felt like anything anything goes in that bubble right now. Although, again, like, the Clippers may look like the, may, may, may be the favorite, per se, to win a championship. But it's not a sure thing, man. It's just not a sure thing because <laughs> something could get hot all of a sudden, right? So we'll see. Yeah, there, there's no clear favorite. I feel like, you know, I think most people think the Clippers will win, but that's based more on, on what we're expecting them to turn into rather than what they actually are now. Yeah. And it's the first year in a very long time that you've made it to the second round, and there doesn't seem to be a clear favorite based on just, you know, on-court play. Um, not that that favorite always wins, obviously. Um, you yeah. know, we've seen plenty of upsets, but normally this time of year, you're you're looking at it and you go, well, this is the team to beat clearly, and we we don't have that right now. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, we'll talk about WNBA. Um, the playoffs start next week already. This is a short season because again, pandemic. Twenty-two games. Is that a good length for a season for WNBA? You think, or they should have thirty-four, thirty-six, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm okay with it for just because of this year, but you know, they were supposed to bump up to thirty-six games this season. Right. Um, I think that would have been a much better um 22 is just it's weird it's just so weird because it you can gain and lose positioning so quickly yeah with just you know one injury or one hot streak or cold streak or whatnot the nice thing about the WNBA is you know eight of the 12 teams make the postseason so it's not really like you know if you were in the NBA I think there would be a chance that in a 22 game season that one of the best teams might just like not make the playoffs you know you have like one injury and then you just you know, you go like 10 and 12 and you miss the playoffs. But with two-thirds of the teams getting in and there being a few really, really bad teams in the WNBA, <laughs> um, at least everyone who should be in is going to get in. But it's very weird at that length. So which team surprises you? Is it the Lynx? The Lynx have surprised me, um, which I feel like maybe they shouldn't because... They're always there. <laughs> yeah, they're always there. I mean, Cheryl Reeve is just such a tremendous coach and um you know i thought that maybe they'd be lacking in talent a little bit but you know nafisa collier is just so tremendous yeah um she's just done a a phenomenal job uh really that i haven't been that surprised by anyone playing well so much as the teams that aren't playing as well you know i think chicago has been really disappointing i expected them to to be the second best team in the league after seattle i just thought that they were ready to take that leap Mm-hmm. Um, instead, they've just been kind of like flirting with 500 all year. Um, I guess the Aces actually have surprised me with how good they've been. Um, I was I was not a big believer in the Aces, um, which I know makes me a little bit in the minority here. So um, I I guess I shouldn't be surprised so much as just wipe some egg off my face. Uh, but the Aces have been really good uh, against what I expected them to be, and they they look like as good of a shot of as any to beat Seattle. I mean, I don't blame you. They lost. I mean, Cam Beige is not playing this year. Uh, Kelsey Plum, obviously, with her torn Achilles. Um, 
and you know trying to fit an Angel Bacotri, which I know you were skeptical of <laughs> earlier this season. Um, I was, I was, but she's she's been really good. So you know, credit to her. I I didn't think she was as good as a lot of people think, and I just thought the fit with her was horrible. But um, it they've made it work. So so props to her. Props to the whole team and Bill Lambier. They've they've made that fit work. Yeah. It's funny to me because like I've been writing about the WNBA as well. I kept writing about the Storm, the Aces, the Lynx, and all this time I had no idea like the Sparks were sneaking up on me. Even though they're <laughs> the home team, I, I'm so stupid right now. It's like, wait, they won five straight, six, seven, eight, nine. Like, I keep forgetting the perennial contenders. Like the Sparks, Candace Parker, uh, probably in the ring for MVP, obviously. Uh, Chelsea Gray, uh, obviously the point god, as they say. Um, Brittany Sykes has been amazing this year. So, um, what about the Sparks? Yeah, they're, they're a hard case because they've been really good. Uh, they've also struggled against most of the um, top teams. Um, that's where most of their losses have, have come. Right. Um, but they've been playing so well lately um, and and only finally lost once Neka Gumake had some injuries that she was working through and wasn't able to play. Yeah. Um, Brittany Sykes, I think, is kind of an X factor because, you know, they got her in the off season and she didn't do too much in the first few games when she was coming off the bench. And then when Tierra Rupp and Pratt got injured, they were forced to put Sykes into the lineup, and the team just kind of started to take off because Sykes is just she's a much better offensive player than Rupp and Pratt, and they needed that spacing because they just didn't have a lot of spacing. Um, so they've kind of taken off since she got into the starting lineup, and they've got some spacing and. Uh, you know, they're they're a very interesting team to watch because they've played really well, I think. They've had some head-scratching moments, um, but they have so much talent. They just have so much talent that if they're healthy, um, especially with the year that, that Candace Parker has had bouncing back after a really rough 2019, she's been phenomenal this year. Yeah. Um, they, they can compete with anyone, I think. Mm-hmm. So, an interesting uh, wrinkle here is that, okay, Dallas Wings are number eight right now, and should they make it, wouldn't you be afraid of going against Arike Ogunbowale in an elimination game? Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. She can she she can shoot you to a win in any particular game. Um, so, let's see, if they season ender right now, that would be Phoenix. Yeah, they'd be playing in that first. Which round. would be tough. Like Diana Taurasi and Skyler are playing really well. They are. They are. Um, you know, they haven't had as good of a year as I think they were hoping for, but but they're starting to figure things out. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Arike can she can shoot you directly into a win at any given point. And that's you know, some people dislike it, but that's the beauty of the the one game <laughs> single elimination in the WNBA is you get those kinds of performances you get those kinds of exciting games yeah um, and that's you know that would i don't think dallas versus phoenix would be a series you would be interested in watching at five games certainly dallas versus seattle if they played a traditional uh, playoff format i don't think that would be a fun you know five or seven game series but uh dallas versus phoenix in a one game series that's that's must watch tv yeah, I mean, potentially, like, if Arike does what she does, did in college, like, Dallas could shoot to the semifinals if possible, right? So, I mean, these one-game eliminate one one game elimination rounds are just tricky. I mean, come on. Like, we see what she does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they provide an opportunity for star players to, to remind people that they're star players, that's for sure. And they provide an opportunity for, you know, good teams, as we see in March Madness every year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's for good teams to go, uh-oh, yeah. that ended way quicker than it was supposed to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we talked Aces, Sparks, Lynx, but Seattle Storm are still, like, the undisputed team, right? Like, they're 16-3. and um, Brianna Stewart, like, I don't care what anyone says, but, like, for her to bounce back like that after an Achilles injury, which you, of course, obviously know, we talked about this, is remarkable. It's unbelievable. It, it's it's truly unprecedented. Yeah. You know, I can't remember ever seeing a professional basketball player bounce back from an Achilles injury and look like nothing happened. Yeah. And that's really what it is. I mean, she she won MVP in 2018. She tore her Achilles in 2019 and she's going to win MVP in 2020. <laughs> and that's just that's 
unprecedented. I mean, I don't know my NBA history well enough to to know for sure that that didn't happen in like the 60s, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that in basketball, professional basketball history, that it is unprecedented for a player to bookend an Achilles injury with MVP awards. Uh, but she really, if you were in a coma for 2019, you <laughs> would not know watching this season that Brianna Stewart had suffered an injury since being the best player in the world in 2018. Yeah. I can't even, yeah, I can't, I can't even comprehend coming back from an injury like that and and being that good still. Yeah, because in the history of basketball players suffering Achilles injuries, like, I feel like only Dominique Wilkins came back as strong, and the rest, their career is pretty much done after that. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah Dominique Wilkins might be the only one who, who came back and actually was a star player still at any capacity. Everyone else just yeah. dropped off. You know, yeah. knock on wood, hopefully, you know, Kevin Durant comes back in form. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, he and Brianna Stewart are, are good friends, so hopefully, <laughs> you know, she gives him some of some advice or some of whatever, you know, magic medicine she's taking or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, there's, there's also Rookie of the Year, which um, I've seen many debates about this on my timeline. So, are you are you in danger field, Sabali, or um, who was the other one again? I forget. Ah, oh, jeez. Um... Well, Kennedy Carter's been Kennedy Carter, Kennedy Carter. Been injured, yeah. but yeah. I think she's injured too much. Yeah. Um, uh, Sabali is making such a strong run yeah. lately, such a strong run. But I think I still have to be. I think I'd still go Dangerfield. I think she's just been a little bit more consistent, a little bit of a bigger role. But you can't really go wrong between those two, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, you don't think Kennedy Carter should win because of too much, too many injuries? Yeah, I mean, I should check that. Maybe she didn't miss quite as much time as I thought she did. Five games? Five games? Oh, that isn't... See, that's the really hard thing about a year like this. Yeah. I don't feel like missing five games should knock you out of awards contention in a normal year, but that's like... That's like 22% of a season or something. (laughs) (laughs) This is just ridiculous. Uh Um... Yeah, so, but you're right, I mean, at five games, oh, she's been so good. Yeah, she has. She's, she's just been phenomenal, so you really can't go wrong with any any of those players. It's, you know, it's obviously a bummer that Sabrina got injured and, and we didn't get to see where she would have slotted in this race, because it is a really good, it's just a really good rookie class. If we just judge by her second game, she wins. <laughs> yes. She scored 33 points in that game. Um but yeah, it's like, okay, so Carter leads the rookies in scoring. Uh, Dangerfield's obviously on a winning team, but also putting up stats. And uh, we've, seen, we've seen somebody put up some huge games. Like, I think she had, what, 28 and 10 that one time? And 23 and 17 the other? Yeah, so how would you judge Rookie of the Year? Because, like, I feel like winning doesn't matter as much compared to, like, MVP. Like, we saw Allen Iverson win Rookie of the Year in the NBA in 96, 97. And uh, he won Rookie of the Year, and they only won, like, 21 games in that year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like I have this conversation with at least one person every year at the end of at award season uh-huh. uh rookie of the year is just it's fascinating because it's like it's not really a value award it's like not, yeah. most valuable player um it's kind of more of an award where it's like who impressed us the most and who made us think oh they're going to be a star but you also have to account i think at some level for it's not just showing potential but actually having some of that potential materialize a little bit. And, you know, it was a really... Last year was a great example in the WNBA because it came down to Nafisa Collier and Enrique Ogumboale. Right. And they were such different players because Collier was like... She was on a good team, and she was just like a well-rounded, valuable player. She was playing great defense. She was rebounding well. And she wasn't really doing those, like you're a superstar, unbelievable talent things, but she was just playing good basketball. And then Wale was like, you know, putting up 30 points here and 30 points there and 20 points there, but was pretty inefficient and not playing good defense. And I don't think as valuable of a player, but she did so many things where you're like, this could be one of the best scorers we ever see. She has so much talent. Right. And it's really hard to to compare those two things. I normally end up like somewhere in the middle where you don't need to be on a good team, but I kind of want to see 
that you're actually helping your team win now in addition to looking like someone who is going to be a perennial all-star somewhere down the road. Um, which I think is, is kind of why I'm, I'm leaning Dangerfield right now because like she hasn't flashed the star potential of like a Kennedy Carter, but she is doing a lot of the things that help you win now. Um, even and even if she weren't on a good team, I think that would be the case. Although I guess if you want to go in that direction, you know, Sabaly has she's probably the best defender of that group, the best rebounder of that group. Kind uh, of a team that you could put on a player that you could put on any team, and she would be valuable. This is Shay, Shay Serrano, and you are listening to the Ray Ray is Fundamental Podcast. I think Ray Ray should change the name of the podcast, but. He likes it, so that's what you're listening to. So basically, like, some sort of balance there, right? Like, enough to help a team win, but also enough to, like, show your star potential. Yeah, because, like, no one wants a rookie of the year to be, like... I mean, this happens more in the NBA because you get, like, one-year players and stuff who are really raw. Like, no one wants the rookie of the year to be that polished 23-year-old who plays (laughs) really good defense and is really selective with their shots and averages like five points a game you know because that just doesn't feel it doesn't feel authentic Mm -hmm. that that would be the rookie of the year even if you know the advanced metrics might say oh this is the best player because they're smart and they're valuable but it's like you don't want your rookie of the year to be someone who you know is never going to be an all-star never going to be a star (laughs) So yeah, I think I think you got to find that balance where they're actually a good player, but you also see something that makes you really excited. There was a huge debate, although I'm not sure how the voting came out. I think it was kind of like a landslide anyway. But there was a huge debate over not I'm not sure was it the internet already or because there's no Twitter at the time, but but in 08 where it was Al Horford against Kevin Durant for Rookie of the Year. Yeah, and, yeah, that was a big debate. Yeah, that was a big debate. But they, but the Sonics saved our Sonics, please. Uh, won twenty-one games, I believe, that year. They were just terrible. The Sonics were terrible. But Kevin Durant scored twenty points a game. And then Al Horford and the Hawks, they made the eighth seed. But Horford like didn't average double-digit points, but like was a good rebounder and defender for his first year. And that was quite a debate between those two. Yeah, and and even at a at a lesser extent. Um, there was a there was a pretty big debate with Brogdon and Joel Embiid. Yeah. Um, partially because Embiid, you know, only played like 31 games or something like that, and it was. Right. But that that you know is kind of similar to me because like how do you how do you judge that with with Embiid where it's like well he was clearly the better talent but he only played 31 games so do you give it to the guy who like clearly played better or do you give it to the guy who was actually there and contributed to a playoff team with some good basketball yeah they, they always said that availability is a skill <laughs> they do always say that but man it feels weird to to vote for major awards based on that <laughs> well like, like congratulations malcolm here's your rookie of the year trophy <laughs> thanks for staying healthy great job i mean this this shouldn't be really be a debate like this year where um jean morant won like nine out of a hundred votes for rookie of the year but the other vote went to Zion, who is not available for, like, 50 games. So, yeah. I mean, but then again, like, but Morant played so well throughout the entire year that, um, yeah, Zion played well, but it wasn't, like, you know, heads and shoulders above Jean Morant at all. Yeah, if Morant had just kind of had, like, a decent year, then I think it would have been a, a pretty compelling argument in Zion's favor. Yeah. Uh, but Morant had, like... Because that was the weird thing with Embiid and Brogdon was like, and I'm a big Malcolm Brogdon fan. We've yes. obviously already talked about him a bit today, but like his rookie year was really boring. He was just like a very like he was a veteran basically. Like he played defense, he shot threes, he just kind of like he was a really valuable role player who didn't really do anything exciting. I gotta look up the stats and, now. And <laughs> yeah, now I'm curious. I might. Be, Watch me just be totally wrong and him average like 40 points. But, um, but you know, he wasn't like the player where you thought, oh, this guy should have been a rookie of the year in any year. It was more kind of like my default. Versus John Morant is like, if you plug John Morant into any year, he's going to be a front runner for rookie of the year with that performance. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, your 2017 rookie of the year averaged 10.2 points, 2.8 rebounds, and 4.2 assists. 
Oh, not the Brock worse than I thought. <laughs> That's worse than I thought. And he played really good defense. Like, you know, credit there. It's, it's just, it wasn't a rookie of the year performance. You know, nothing about him made you think, oh, wow, this guy. That's the rookie. But there just wasn't anyone else. Yeah. So, yeah, they went, um, okay, 30 and 37 when he was playing. <laughs> Let me, the entire record. Well, it's basically a 500 team. 42 and 40. Average 10.2 points. So there's your, um, somewhat of a good team and solid stats, I guess, for a rookie. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh. let me ask you this now, and I respect every player out there that's played in the NBA, but, you know, we have to ask this. Who was, who was the worst rookie of the year in the NBA, you thought, that you could think of? Oh, gosh. I would have to, like, look at a list here, but, I mean... Okay, I'll, I'll get the list. Hold on. It has to be, like, near, near the top, right? Yeah, I'll go get the list Um, while you... Okay, rookie of the year... All right, so uh, let's go back to the 90s, okay. Oh. Vincent, 91, Derek Coleman, 92, Larry Johnson, 93, Shaq, 94, Chris Webber, 95, Grant Hill, and Jason Kidd. It was a tie. Uh, 96, Stoudemire, 97, Iverson, 98, Tim Duncan, 99, Vince Carter, 2000, Ellen Brand, Steve Francis, 01, Mike Miller. Mike Miller. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of broke a streak. <laughs> Those uh, really good players there, huh? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I forgot about Tyreek Evans win board. Okay, so in 2001 Rookie of the Year race, where Kenyon Martin was the number one pick, right? <clears throat> uh, Mike Miller won the award. Kenyon Martin was second. Mark Jackson, with a C, was third for the Warriors. Remember him? Oh, Mark Jackson. Yeah. Good old Mark Jackson. <laughs> yeah. And other players getting first place votes were Darius Miles and Mo Peterson. Wow, that was a draft. <laughs> that was a draft. Yeah. Uh, wow. O2, Pau Gasol. O3, Amari Sotomayor. O4, LeBron James. O5, Emeka Okafor. O6, yeah. Chris Paul. O7, Brandon Roy. O8, Kevin Durant. O9, Derek Rose. 10, Tyreek Evans. You mentioned Tyreek Evans. Uh, but he had a really good year that year. He had a really good year. He, if you look on, like, Rookie of the Year, like, the career of people who won Rookie of the Year, he's got to be pretty near the bottom. But the actual Rookie year was... He, he was a deserving. You know, I'm enough of a Warriors homer that I still think Steph should have won that year, but... Uh, <laughs> but Tyreek was, was a pretty darn deserving Rookie of the Year. You know, I thought Johnny Flynn was going to be something. Like I thought to myself, like, oh man, Jonathan—he was great in college. He's gonna—he's gonna smoke the league. Woo! What was I wrong? <laughs> you know, my mixed bag hot takes from that draft were on the positive side. I thought that Steph Curry was going to be a star. Hmm. On the negative side, though, he was number two on my draft board behind Ricky Rubio. <laughs> I was really hoping Rubio would fall to the Warriors, and then Steph fell instead, and I was like, all right, that's great consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, but those retro takes, though, man, like, nobody except you, apparently, thought that Steph Curry was going to be a star. Like, everyone just thought, like, oh, he's going to be a nice starter, or maybe a sixth man or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, he 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 really just didn't get hyped that much. I, I thought he was going to be a star not because I have any talent for evaluation. <laughs> But because I have an extreme bias towards shooters. Yeah. And just, if if a player has a beautiful jump shot, I just think, or, you know, I've grown a little bit since then. But, uh, you know, at the time, I just thought, this guy has a great jump shot. He's going to be great. And that's just a bias I have as someone who can shoot well and can't do anything else on a basketball court. <laughs> so, what can you do? Yeah. I mean, I thought, I, I thought like, I'm not even sure if you heard of Curtis Stanton. And from Virginia in the Curtis 90s. Staples. Oh man, there's a name I haven't heard of. <laughs> but he was a shooter. He was. Yeah. He was. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know I, I thought JJ Redick was going to be like a multiple-time all-star. I definitely and... didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I just had to wait for Curry to like fix my uh, shooter bias. He made it look good, and then I just had to retire that bias because. Up until then, I was just all all aboard the shooters. In my defense, Redick has had a nice career, but yeah, know, he has. Yeah, not the star that I 
was sure he would be. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not like... Well, Christian Lehner, like, he made one All-Star game at least. So Yeah, made an All-Star team, made the Olympic team. Yeah. Uh, let's finish this Rookie of the Year <laughs> list. 11, Blake Griffin. 12, Kyrie Irving. 13, Dame. 14, Michael Carter-Williams. Oh, I forgot about Michael Carter-Williams. Yeah, so did I, and so did he. Um... <laughs> Let let's see. Uh, the it wasn't even close. A hundred four out of a hundred twenty four first place votes. Wow. Number two, Victor Oladipo. Three, Trey Burke. Four, Mason Plumley. Five, Tim Hardaway oh. Jr. Oh. Six, Gorgie Jang. Tied for seventh, Stephen Adams, Giannis, and Nick <laughs> Nick Kalathis. <laughs> the only the only time in the world that Nick Calathus has tied Giannis in anything. <laughs> oh my god. Wow, that is a really funny that is a really funny uh rookie year class. Uh yeah. Fifteen Andrew Wiggins, which I know people have been so critical of him over his career, but I mean he's a good scorer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like Wiggins is kind of like your prototypical rookie of the year, where it's like, uh, you probably weren't good, but you scored a ton of points, and you're young, and that's exciting. <laughs> if you're a Minnesota fan, you should probably be excited, so we'll give you the... Uh, that didn't really work out, but, you know, I get the logic behind, like, oh, you're a, you know, 19 or 20-year-old who's averaging, like, 20 points a game, that's... That's a rookie of the year. He won a hundred ten out of a hundred thirty first place votes. Uh, two, Nikola Merotic. Uh, <laughs> three, Nerlens Noel. Four, Alfred Payton. Five, Marcus Smart. Uh, six, Yusuf Nurkic, and seven, Jordan Clarkson. Um, oh my God! Yeah. What a bad. <laughs> yeah, sixteen was Cat. Seventeen. The let's look at Malcolm Brogdon. Some. <laughs> <laughs> competitors in that, in that list. Uh, uh, so he won uh, now 64 out of the field right. 64 out of 96 first place votes. Why are there fewer first place votes now? Um, At some point they cut down, but I didn't know they cut down that much. Yeah. Second place was Dario Saric. In B, he was even runner-up. He was third. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense. He just didn't play enough, but yeah. man, he was good. Availability is a skill! Um, fourth, but, fourth, Buddy Healed. Um, tied for fifth, Willie Hernan Gomez and Jamal Murray. It's just so, it's just so funny not to like look at these, right? Uh, this is really funny. Yeah. Seventh, Marquise Chris. Tied for eighth, Jalen Brown, Yogi Ferrell, Rodney Magruder. Wow. That's, uh, Marquise Chris finished ahead of... <laughs> Jalen Brown in Rookie of the Year? Yeah. Who gave Marquise Chris votes for Rookie of the Year? <laughs> probably saw, probably so saw one game. Him. Probably saw one dunk that, like, knocked the socks off. And... Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. 18, Ben Simmons. 19, okay, we already know the rest. So, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was a trip down memory lane. Yeah. Well, this is a long-winded way of answering your question, but I think... Um, <laughs> Anchich was the, the worst rookie of the year in NBA history. <laughs> or maybe LeBron. Maybe LeBron. Uh, yeah, maybe LeBron. He was that, was a, that was a debate too, LeBron and Carmelo. That yeah, was Carmelo that was. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, LeBron, like, I don't think he was very valuable that year. But he definitely, like, you watched him and you knew, like, oh, this is going to be one of the best players in the world. Yeah. I think we took, like, 20 minutes just talking about rookie of the year in the NBA, about how terrible the voting was back then, right? <laughs> <laughs> It was a good time. I like it. Good time. All right. Tell, tell everyone what you got going on, Brady. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, what have I got going on? Well, you know, the WNBA regular season's concluding this weekend. Yes. So uh, I should have a fair amount of Sparks, you know, playoff coverage, some previews, some recaps, some stuff. Uh, you can find that at silverscreenandroll.com. Uh have some Warriors draft stuff when that comes up. You can find that at GoldenStateOfMind.com, and I'm chugging away on Giant stuff. So if you like baseball, McCoveyChronicles.com. Yeah. Where do you follow you on Twitter? Brady Klopfer NBA. I gotta change that and just get the <laughs> NBA name. But uh, for now, Brady Klopfer NBA. Well, I asked Derek this. What was your um? What was what was your aim screen name? Or did I ask that at the last podcast? I don't even remember if I did. But like.
gosh. What was my screen name? Or your ICQ or your MSN <laughs> or whatever you used oh, back in the day. Oh, man, I forgot about ICQ. <laughs> um, wow, well, well, oh, I had so many. Yeah, you, well, um, your regular screen name that you used a lot back then. The one I used most often was Butterdog. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. Um... Butterdog. Yeah, that, that was my main one, Butterdog. <laughs> How come you're not using that now? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. I feel like I've really grown into the name, so I should probably... You should change should your Twitter... Do. You should change your Twitter name from Brady Clawford and Bay to Butterdog NBA. <laughs> or something I, like no, that. I, it would definitely be more memorable, easier for people to find. <laughs> Not a bad idea. It's all market itself. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, that's a marketable, marketable name too. It's like, yeah, what's up? This is Butter Talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god. Oh my god. Uh, find our podcast, uh, Ray Ray's Fundamental, where you can find where you can, where podcasts are available, whether it's Stitcher or Apple or iHeartRadio. Follow me on Twitter at the No Look Pass, although I wish it was as cool as Butter Dog. That would have been awesome. <laughs> Maybe I could be like Jelly Cat or something. <laughs> there you go. It would be a perfect match. <laughs> oh, man. So, once again, hey, Brady, thanks again for coming on, man. That was, this was really fun, dude. So. It's always my pleasure. I always have a great time. Yes, sir. That's Brady. He is Butter Dog. I'm Ray I'm Jelly Cat, apparently, now. So, talk to you guys <laughs> soon. <laughs> Game over, yeah! Hashtag Blame Ray Ray.